Hey everybody, here is another bonus track, and this time we are speaking with Gilbert O'Sullivan, who hits the road at the end of this week for his first U.S. tour in a long time. The tour begins on Saturday, March 11th in Boston, and runs through the month of March, wrapping up in Nashville on March 22nd. Check out the tour dates at gilbertosullivan.co.uk, which you can get to easily by clicking the link in the description for this episode. We discuss Gilbert's latest record, Driven, which features guest appearances by K.T. Tunstall and also Mick Hucknell of Simply Red. Gilbert tells us about his early days with Rick Davies, who went on to be a co-founder of the band Supertramp, as we know now, and some of the important things that he learned from Rick. We discuss his experiences touring here in the U.S. in the early part of the 70s and why he stayed away from the States for so long after that, and that's just the tip of it all. In addition to the new studio album Driven, Gilbert also has a great three-disc compilation that's a comprehensive look at his entire career. It's streaming also in three volumes. I'll link to the physical edition of the collection in the description for this episode for those of you who are still physical media lovers like me. So check it out, Gilbert O'Sullivan. .co.uk. That is where you'll find Gilbert O'Sullivan's tour dates. And as I mentioned, the tour kicks off Saturday in Boston. Here's our chat with Gilbert. I guess, first of all, you know, the reason I brought up uh, Canada as we were starting to talk was uh, it said that uh, this was either your first ever Canadian dates or your first Canadian date in Montreal. I found it hard to believe that you had never performed in Canada. Uh, is that correct? Like, have you been to Canada before? I think the, the the only two I did in America and uh, in, in Canada was was my infamous uh, wonderful disaster tour of 1973. Yeah, I think we did. I seem to remember we did one date in Canada. Um, we started off in in um, in New York in in the what's the venue in New York? The, yeah, it's it's kind of famous theater. Well, that's where we started. Cool. And then we kind of moved out, and but the tour got pulled halfway through. Because of the fact, <clears throat> it's an interesting story because I was managed by Gordon Mills, who managed Tom Jones and Gilbert Humpert, I think. Yeah. And, and after with me, because I'd had three million selling records with, with Alone Again, Claire and Get Down, the decision was, does Ray, does Gilbert go out on his own like Tom and Engelbert? Or does he go out supporting an act? So the options were there. I support the Moody Blues hmm. or I go on my own to, the, to do what Tom and Engelbert do. The big mistake was that I should have, gone with the moody blues because no matter how many records you're selling putting bums on seats is a different ball game and the way to develop uh, back you know a, a good audience is to is to you know is to learn work with big and eventually you'll, be, you'll become that bigger act yourself so that was a mistake so um but anyway carnegie hall was the new york venue well you know i mean that's the thing about a career is that like you inevitably learned so many lessons so when you talk about like what went down with that first tour you know in the u.s back then like how did you move forward from that like how did you kind of pick up the pieces and move on like what you know what was kind of your takeaway like that seems like that'd be a really difficult thing to to carry on after having that happen no because i, I wasn't a born uh, uh artist i mean my background wasn't in the clubs and then developing and getting better and then finding success my background was always writing in a garden shed, just writing songs and writing songs. Yeah. I had two years of success in, in the UK before I did my first tour, which was unusual. So I'm not that used to, you know, when the tour was pulled in America, it was disappointing, of course, but it wasn't my dis decision to, to put me out where they put me out. I can look after myself very capably hmm. when it comes to songwriting and stuff. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody to interfere 
or tell me what they think I should be doing. That's my department. Their department is where, where does he tour? What TV do we give him? So I get led into these kind of places. And when it doesn't work, Matt, well, what do I do? I don't worry about it. I'll go back home, get stuck into the piano and, and start uh, writing more songs and stuff. So that's my sort of, it, it, that's the thing that keeps me pretty much it's grounded and doesn't let me worry too much about what, what, what might be going wrong. It kind of speaks to that other life lesson of not having all your eggs in one basket. Like you had like a lot going in the UK that didn't leave, you know, it didn't leave you cold when things didn't work out how they were supposed to in the States. You had, you had other, other things you could go back to. Yeah. And songwriting was my background. I mean, you know, the, the songwriting was the key that's got me through so many difficult times. Yeah. I was always able to come up with always able, cause I love the, I love the, the, the craft of songwriting. So I always have since I was 15, 16 years old. And so I've never lost that love. So that's helped me in difficult times. And, uh, you know, the touring thing in the 90s, as after the 73 disaster, of course, that, that, that set us back for a while, for quite a few years. But then in the 90s, uh, I had a really good band. And so in my mind, I was saying this time, we've got to try and get back to the States now. And But the difficulty there, as you can imagine, with, with six, seven musicians, the cost is massive. Absolutely. Uh, so three years ago, uh, my guitar player, Bill Shanley and myself decided we would do a, uh, an up-close-and-personal, intimate kind of concert, just the two of us. And it worked out really well. And as a result of that, the door with you opened up. And so so that got us into the States. And so, so I'm really pleased about that. That's and so I'm, cool. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. I wondered how you connected with Bill. Uh, he seems like he's been a good match with you. Well, it's great. You know, his, historically, uh, you may not know this, but uh, Bill, Ray Davis of the Kings, when he toured on his own, Absolutely. Even his side man was Bill. Bill Shanley's a great guitar player. And the, and the bond we have between us, the, uh, the to, you know, the, the, it's magical. It, it works out. We do a two-hour show, you know, with a break in the middle and stuff. And Bill is right there on the guitar, vocals. And, uh, and it's worked out really well because people like the intimacy of it. They like the fact that you'd get the odd complaints with the band because they couldn't hear what you were singing and they, they lost the words and stuff. But this way, up close and personal, People are really enjoying it because they get to hear the words more clear, and they just they just like the, the kind of the quietness of it. Although we can rock it up too; it's just the two of us. <laughs> well, one of one of the folks you have on your latest record, Driven, is uh, Mick Hucknall of Simply Red, and I've always loved Mick as a vocalist and as a writer. Um, I wondered, like, what are your memories of kind of first crossing paths with Mick? Well, I knew he was a fan of, of my music because I met him at a at a, a teenage cancer trust uh, a charity concert and uh i said hello and we talked a bit and stuff and he came to see one of the concerts with the band so i knew he was a fan and when we were recording this album uh my my producer andy wright produces simply red so so uh, andy would say to me that because he would go and visit mick every now and then to discuss their next project which uh, which will actually be coming out now and uh and Andy said that Mick said, "Look, if Ray's got a song, well, it, what, that that he's that he's writing and performing with the band, so I'd love to do a duet with him. So if he's got something, so we sent him a couple of tracks. One of them was uh, Let Bygones Be Bygones,' and, and he picked that. And it's a softer sounding Mick. Well, you know Mick; he can he can blast it out. But the quieter side of him is is uh, what comes across on this particular thing. Really nice to have him on there. Yeah, and I mean." For folks that are familiar with your work and familiar with his work, like just listening to his stuff and yours, like it seems like before you two even meet, it seems like you two 
would have a fair amount of common ground with what you're doing musically. Like you can kind of hear if you heard, you know, Mick and you hear you, you're being like, yeah, I think those guys would probably get along. I think it's what people like about me isn't so much my singing. It's the songs. They like the songs. I mean, Mick has a great voice, much better than me, of course. But uh, but I've loved him since only about the years. I mean, I, that's a that's a wonderful song. Uh, it's so simple, so effective. It's just, you know, and, he, and that's one of a few songs, Fairground, that I really love about Cynthia. So I think it's the, it's the writing. It's As Mick said to me, you know, it's your songs that turn me on to you, uh, that you've written. So it's, it's and that's nice. It compliments me as, as a songwriter. So I, I'm nothing against that. Is that a sitar that I hear on Body and Mind from this new record? No, it's just a, it's the other, we have two guitar players on the album. So they're just, now that's, that's uh, no, just a guitar twinge. What he was doing with the guitar, doing that. It's a super a cool effect. Yeah, it sounds like a sitar, but it's not. It's uh, it's uh, just uh, one of his odd little guitars that he had hanging around in the studio. <laughs> that's cool. Um, like it's always, I think that's always kind of a cool studio thing. Just sometimes, like some of the sounds that you're able to get expected or unexpected in the studio when you're working on a record. Like, I think those are always kind of like the really cool, you know, accidents or otherwise of making a record. Yeah. And the joy of having two guitar players Yeah, means if one can experiment while the other one is keeping the rhythm, one can do a solo while the other one is doing a rhythm. We don't have to keep stopping to, to overdub. This album had very few overdubs apart from maybe uh, once all the recording was done, then I did vocals and stuff, but uh, the recording of it was, was quite live. Not intentionally to be live, but it just it was that way. That's how it turned out. With the two guitars, bass drums, then the organ and stuff. They would hear a song from me on the piano for the first time, go back to their chairs, we'd rehearse it a few times, light would go on, a few takes, that's it. You know, over five days, uh, Matt, we did uh, 14 tracks. Wow. Of which 13 are on the album and stuff. And, and you know, so the, the thing about overdubbing is that you could spend days doing overdubs and this bit and that bit and that bit. And, you know, I think it's much better try and keep the momentum and do as much as you can in that short space of time because it, it, it just has that exciting element about it. Did it take you a while to kind of learn that, uh, learn learn how important that can be? Well, no, because I've used that in the last, the, the album before this one was was produced by Ethan Johns. Sure. And the one, the Ethan's one before, great. Yeah, one before that was, was, um, was another really good producer. But here's the thing. Uh, people have said to me, you know, why, why you had a great time with, with Ethan Johns. You had a, you were having a great time with Andy Wright. Why don't you just work with them? Continue. Why have you changed? And the answer really is quite simple because it's the same writer, the same singer every time. And therefore what the new producer brings adds that makes that difference. That's the important factor that I can't do. You know, Gives a new color. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why that works. I mean, so so I've worked, enjoyed working with all these producers. I might well work with Andy again. Who knows? But but the idea of working with different producers has paid off. I think in a good way. Just generally, what do you think was kind of informing the like overall uh, songwriting inspiration? You know, the sounds, that kind of thing for this record. For this, well, again, you know, in, in writing songs, I'd be influenced by everybody. I, you know, by whether it's an Adele, Lipa Harry Styles, or Chainsmokers. I, I love John Mayer. I mean, I buy everything, Alison Krauss. So maybe that comes out because to be able to write in the first place, remember, we don't read music. We as, you know, whether you're Lennon or McCartney or Ray Davis or whatever, 
We don't read music. We're able to do it because of our love of music. It's the music we hear transports into our ears, comes out the other ear, hopefully with something original. And so therefore, it's always important to be hearing things you like that influence you. And, and, uh, and that, in a sense, when I'm in a writing mode, that's what's arguably coming up because I have no way of knowing what's going to be happening. I just, I'll hit something and I'll, I'll elaborate on it and stuff. You know, because coming up with a melody is the most important aspect of songwriting, in my opinion. However good the lyrics are, the first thing that always grabs my attention is the melody. Uh, it's the lyrics second. But that doesn't mean the lyrics aren't as important. It's just that for me, the melody is the kind of key factor. And I work really hard at that because as one gets older, it becomes more difficult. Uh, it becomes harder. So you have to create a work out. And I feel that that uh, if I can maintain a good melodic input, then I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty happy. Some folks like it goes one way or the other. Like they find not being able to read music a hindrance, and others are happy that they don't have that knowledge. Like you know, being in the dark, kind of in that way, they see as kind of a creative, you know, a better thing creatively. Yeah, I think, and also remember where we came from and stuff. I mean, I, I had piano lessons. My mother sent me to piano lessons for a short period of time. <clears throat> and, the, and the piano teacher found out when I was playing the piece that she put up on the music, but she found out that I wasn't actually reading it. I was just playing it. And she kind of said to my mother, said, well, look, it's, there's no point in him having lessons because he can pick these things up by ear and stuff. So and that saved my, money, my mother probably quite a bit of money and not having to uh, piano lessons. But here's the thing. For songwriting, for me, going right back to the start, is the, is the lack of knowledge about the instrument and about the chords and about the different time frames or whatever it is that you're involved with on the piano. First time you play a minor chord, you don't know it's a minor chord, but you, you like the sound of it. And that helps you in develop a song. Seventh, coming across a seventh, you don't know what it is at the time, but it sounded really good. That helped you in songwriting. So all those kind of ways, if I discovered all those things or knew all that stuff before I started, I don't think I would have been as good a songwriter as I am because it's it's discovering all these new sequences of where my fingers will go. I mean, I when I have a particular song that I sit with an arranger, I have my way of playing the chords in the song. But when he then plays it, I look at him and I say, well, that's not right. <laughs> it sounds right. It's because he knows the chord much more more simpler, whereas I'm spread out, my fingers all. But that, you know, that's the magic of it. It's, and to this day, I haven't lost that urge to find coming across little on my left hand, the bass note on my left hand can trigger off the chord on the right. Fascinating process. Love it. <clears throat> yeah, that is the magic of it. Like, because, you know, you look at each piano player, whether it's yourself or somebody like, you know, Bruce Hornsby or like, say, somebody like Dave Brubeck, like each of these people, like, you know, you hear this person play piano and, uh, you know, I don't think that you're going to come across a piano player that doesn't have a unique sound because of how they learned to play the instrument, what was going on, you know, around the, around them at the time they learned to play the instrument, the stuff they were listening to. But it's just like, I think you have a very... And this has been noted, but you have a very interesting approach to the way you play. Like, you know, what what yeah, do you think kind yeah. of ultimately informed that? I, it's because I used to be a drummer. I started off with bands sure. as a drummer. Yeah. So the left hand is the is the rhythm. Zone. You know, I can rock it up, and that left hand goes <laughs> pumping. The track on the album that we have, uh, uh, let, um, let take love. When we do that live, it's just the two of us. It rocks. So that that's that's my left hand banging away, and the right hand because I I'm not pianoforte. I'm just rhythm so the right hand is the chords the rhythm the left hand is that 
that driving rhythm. So it's it it, it works out really well and stuff. I mean, I admire people like Bruce Bruce Hornsby. I love him and stuff. And I, you know, an influence for me also was, of course, was um, Ramsey Lewis and stuff. I love the oh, yeah. crowd and stuff. I got really those days. I have a couple of songs which were influenced by it, that sound he had. And then another great piano player was, I was in a band called Rick's Blues. And Rick yeah. played piano. I mean, he's a great piano player. He introduced me to, and I, you know, I was the drummer in the band, but he was a much better drummer than me. He's one of these gifted musicians. Uh, well, he taught me blues piano, which was great, because we used to go to his mother's and his aunt's house where there was an upright piano and stuff. He's a, he's a great piano. He's just gifted musician. Uh, as I say, I was the drummer in the band, but he's a much better drummer than me. I mean, he could do it with um, Dave Brubeck's uh, drummer. I'm trying to think of his name, who could do the one-handed roll. I mean, Rick could do that. I mean, you know, he, he had all wow. these albums, these battle albums between Gene Krupa and, you know. I mean, anyway, I mean, he's just one of those great people. thing is, when, when that band, we were a really good band, and we could have actually turned professional. I was beginning to write. We went, we went to London, did a couple of my songs and stuff. So things looked good for us. But the... We couldn't turn professional because the two, the bass player and the guitar player, were on apprenticeships, so they didn't want to risk. Uh, mm -hmm. But Rick and I were determined to have a career in music at this point. But he needed to be in a band. He couldn't be on his own. So he joined a band called The Lonely Ones, which became a band called The Joint, which ended up becoming Supertramp. So, you know, so Rick really found his niche. And I then ended up just becoming me, coming up to London on my own to break into the business and stuff. And, yeah, good times. Did you realize that he was, uh, you know, doing the Super Tramp thing? Were you guys still in contact? Like, how did you find out about that? No, 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 because they used to come up. Remember, I was successful before they were. In fact, my one of the one of the major TV shows in England at the time uh, was Top of the Pops. So Twenty million people would watch it every week, and you, on some of the times, you'd be miming to a record rather than playing live. And on this particular show, that the time that I did the show for one of my records, uh, I got Supertramp to come in and and uh, support me, even though they weren't playing. So we go back a long way. I mean, they were really good band. Roger Hodgson, as you know, was the main writer of Supertramp. Rick's material is his album. The great thing with Rick was he writes album types of tracks. He's not really commercial. Roger is the commercial one, as I would have been if we'd have turned professional. I would write the commercial stuff, and Rick would write the stuff for albums, which is great because people like that, you know, what Rick can do. So it's, and he used to come to my flat and, and potter around on the piano and stuff. So I used to meet them all the time. And, and uh, you know, I, I was really pleased when they, they found the success that they had, uh, particularly with Breakfast in America, which was magical. I love the song structure. Uh, you've had a lot of hits. I love the song structure of Alone Again Naturally. Um, what was it like developing that? Like, what what were the complicated things of getting it to where you wanted to be um, in your memory? It wasn't complicated, Matt. It was just it was the song. I was it was a in, a in a writing period. Just prior to that, I was working as a postal clerk, ten pound a week, and my, my piano was in my bedsit, uh, which didn't bother the people living below me because they were young, so they kind of quite <laughs> what I was doing, but. Um, when Gordon Mills took, took me on, I could give up my job and I could move into a cottage that he owned and I could write full time. And I could have 10 pound a week without having to, to break me and pack parcels up. So I was imagining that. So during a writing process for me at the time, what tended to happen was that most of the, if you were making an album, it, you wouldn't be going into a studio to, to make the album or you'd be doing, doing what we did back then, three hour session, two tracks, A side and a B side. Mm -hmm. so the time that Alone Again was written, 
two songs I was writing at that time. One of them was Alone Again, the other was Out of the Question. Happy with both, no problem. The story behind Alone Again is not based on, on experience, it's just an understanding. I think what makes you a good lyricist is to get into a subject without have to, having experienced what you're talking about. And that's important, particularly if it's a serious one. So I was really happy with it, no problem. I had two middle eights, couldn't decide which one. In the end, I chose the one that went on it. And the session was booked. We go to the studio. Gordon liked, Gordon Mills liked both songs. Everybody in the studio thought that Out of the Question was the obvious one for the single because hmm. that was more commercial than Alone Again. But in the end, Gordon Mills said, Alone Again actually may not be as commercial as Out of the Question, but but being a better song, let's go with it and stuff. So the rest is history. So it's, it's, it's kind of good to know. You don't want to be knowing that what you've written could change you know, in your life. And so, God forbid, that would be it. that would be dreadful. Because then every time you'd written anything, you'd be expecting the same reaction. That's impossible. You know, the, the great thing is our business is that you can't always predict what's going to happen. The best artists in the world have failed. You know, they, it's happened to everybody. And you can just come out of it if you're talented enough to continue. So I don't worry about success for me is writing what I think is a good song. Yeah. Only I'm, I'm not letting anybody else hear it when I make that uh, point. But then, uh, you know, I'm happy if we make a good record and it, it, it's successful. But I have no control over that aspect of it. So I just accept it. If it's successful, fine. If it isn't, move on. <clears throat> I love that anecdote uh, of you having a piano in your flat and having a young couple that was patient. So, you know, they dealt with it because that made me think of uh, Glenn Fry telling the story in the Eagles documentary about having Jackson Brown as a downstairs neighbor, you know, and, and he's like, he just heard him working on this song over and over and over, you know? So, so I, I think that that's a familiar position and or a struggle for a lot of people in your position, you know, coming up early on. It's just like, are you in a place where you can create without, you know, driving people crazy? And so luckily for you, you were in the right place. Yeah. But here's the, here's the, here's the more ironic thing is that, that, the house we lived in in Swindon in Wiltshire, council house. So we were one of like four, four or five houses before there was a break. And your back garden was very small, just about enough to have a little vegetable plot. But you know, you're, you're five houses. You've got a tiny little back garden. My mother allowed me to put the, the garden shed in the gar in. Uh, sorry, allowed me to put the piano in the garden shed. So I put egg boxes up. Yeah. So now you right. So you're you're at night time. You come back from college. You go out to the piano. And you're banging away. I'm singing Masters of War by Bob Dylan at the top of my voice and stuff. And and no problems. On a weekend, the men in the houses next to us would be out there on Sunday with their potatoes and their cabbages and their lettuces. Doing, and this idiot in the house next door is singing and singing, he said, oh, I'm banging this out of tune piano. That was me. They never, ever complained. So, I mean, that's absolutely fantastic when I look back. It's, um, you know, it, nobody ever complained. And, and in many ways, they would have had every right. They would have had every right to. But, uh, yeah, amazing. <laughs> How good was that piano in the uh, in the garden shed? Like, I think about, like, you know, with depending on what the action is like on a particular piano keyboard, you get used to a certain thing. Sometimes that certain thing can shape, you know, what you do, you know. So how, what was that piano like that you used in those well, early days? Well, it, I couldn't afford a piano tuner, so I had to accept it the way it was. Yeah, sure. Too, too expensive. To, even when I moved to London on my own, in my bed in London, uh, I couldn't get the piano tuner. I mean, it's a very, very expensive tuning and stuff. But um, 
No, the interesting thing there is that the first tape that I sent, in those days, everything was on reel-to-reel. -reel. This was before cassettes uh, and before well, where we are now. But back then, so if you wanted to send songs to a record company, to a publisher or whatever, you would do it on a reel-to-reel. And so the cheapest reel-to-reels were message tapes. For example, if you had a relative in Australia and you were living in England, you know these little tapes, you could borrow the tape recorder and you could give the message to your family on the other side of the world. So that's what I had, a little message tape. And I did three songs or four songs, including a song called Disappear. And that's what I sent to the record companies. First record company I sent it to, uh, I did got no reaction. Uh, so I, uh, I went up to London for the day and went into their offices and, and acted very upset that my tape and I, it's the only tape I had. And please, could you find it for me? So, so they found my tape. Obviously, they got hundreds of tapes sent to them. So I couldn't complain about. But I got my tape back, and in a in a sense, that's the tape that. Uh, <clears throat> after that situation, when I moved to London, I took a job as a postal clerk. Uh, sorry, I worked over Christmas in a, a CNAs just yeah. uh, on the men's floor. And one of the guys also working there had landed a record deal with CBS. So I asked him if he would uh, take my tape along. And by luck or whatever you want to call it, uh, he came back and said, no, the, the publishers really like this songs. Go and meet them. So th this was April Music who were joined to CBS Records. Uh, CBS Records weren't interested, but the publishers were. They liked the songs. And I said, well, you're not going to have a publishing agreement signed by me unless you give me a recording contract. So in the end, they gave me a, two singles a year, <laughs> two singles a year. But I was really happy. And uh, so that kind of started it off. And, and, uh, Where did you get that confidence to make that kind of request? I think it's determination. I knew I was a good songwriter, Matt. I knew I had the ability because I created a character image-wise, which nobody liked. Huh. I, I did this uh, Charlie Chaplin jacket, pudding basin haircut. You know, this is 1967, Flower Power, James Taylor, the Eagles, not the Eagles, but uh, Pink Floyd, the sure. Beatles, of course. Long hair was here to stay, and there's was, there was me with a pudding basin haircut and stuff. So I was freakish <clears throat> looking, but I wanted to do something that dared to be different. So I, I knew it had nothing to do with the songwriting. The songwriting is a serious thing, but the image thing, why not? But nobody liked it. <clears throat> the record company said, please, please, grow your hair, wear jeans, you'll sell far more records, far, far, far more many records than you're ever going to sell looking like you are now. And they were right to some extent. Because <clears throat> I think that with my first album, with the way I looked on the cover, you wouldn't want to be walking around the campus with that under your arm. I mean, it's, it's so, so I think I suffered in, in that respect. But I was I was very determined. I always had that determination. And if the record company didn't like me, I'd move on. Yeah, I mean, nice. I, I, you know, you have to have that self-belief. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. If, you, if I need you to tell me you think I'm okay or I'm good, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you have to have that belief yourself. Because even if my philosophy has always been, you may you may not be as good as you think you are, but thinking you are is good. That is about the wisest philosophy that anybody could uh, carry through with. So I like that. Well, hey, man, um, I want to wrap up here. Um, we're excited that you're coming to the States uh, for this run of shows. Uh, I do want to mention uh, the best of that you've got out as well, my best of. Uh, nice little 67 song primer on your career, which uh, includes stuff all the way through Driven. Um, so, uh, you know, for folks that, you know, really want to take the entire ride, that seems like a, you know, a good place to go as well. Um, and, uh, and, and then there's the album. So we'll look forward to seeing you over here, man. Thank you so much for the time. Matt, good to see you. Good to talk to you.
Take care. All right. Have a great one. Thanks, Thank Gilbert. Bye-bye right. now. Bye-bye.